there's a special alchemy that comes about when the words and the pictures blend together in a way. And that magic that happens in the in the space between two panels, when the reader has to fill in the gaps and stuff, that's a special thing that, that comics do. And uh, I always, always try to strive to do that, pull the readers into the story. Welcome to the Under the Mask podcast, where we discuss the super process behind superheroes. Not just superheroes, aliens, horror, thrillers. If you can find it on a comics page, you can find it here. Here, you'll learn how to make comics from the initial outlines, scripts, and artwork to printing and putting the final book in a bag and board. For many years, Bill Colombe has written his book, Kinetic, and sold thousands of copies across the nation. And now we're inviting you along for an inside look to the comics process. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you're in the right place. This is the Under the Mask Podcast, and this is Bill Colombe. Under the Mask Podcast, episode 27. This is one episode of Under the Mask you can't afford to miss. Today's guest has over 30 years of experience in comics. Let's get to it. You know, it sounds cliche, but my guest today truly needs no introduction. He's been drawing comics professionally for over 30 years, working on big properties like Superman and Wonder Woman with DC Comics, and at Dark Horse Comics, the Alien and Predator franchises. But he's most well-known for his creator-owned science fiction adventure series that debuted at Dark Horse, Trekker. The latest chapter of Trekker, Hunter's Moon is live now on Kickstarter through October 29th. You should check it out at www.trekkerkickstarter.com. I'd like to introduce my friend, Ron Randall. Can you give us a little rundown of your career and how you got to be here today? Okay, well, uh, uh, my name is Ron Randall. I'm a comic book artist. I've been in the business uh, since the early 1980s. I went to the Joe Kubert School, started out working uh, uh, on different books for DC Comics, did a little bit of work for Marvel. And then when Dark Horse was first starting up, uh, they approached me at a local comic convention and invited me to come and do some work for them. They sort of lured me away from a steady gig that I had working on a monthly book at DC Comics. I was drawing the Warlord comic at the time by saying, if you come and work for us, uh, we'll let you do whatever we'll pay you and we'll let you do whatever you want, essentially, Um, which was a sentence I knew I would never hear again in my life. And I was right. But um, so that gave me the opportunity to to build my dream comic. And uh, that's Trekker, the series that I'm still working on to this very day. As well as doing Trekker, which has been sort of an interrupted journey <laughs> over its long life. I've uh, done mother work uh, at Dark Horse. I drew uh, a Star Wars miniseries when Dark Horse had the rights to that. I've done Star Trek when Marvel had the rights for that. Uh, I've drawn Predator miniseries for, for Dark Horse. Uh, I did a Venom miniseries at Marvel back in the 90s. So um, did, did a run on Justice League Europe for a while. So uh, I've, been, I've been around a long time. A lot of experience working for the big two, sort of babysitting. <laughs> other people's properties. Uh, but uh, the core of my career and when, what I'm largely about these days is uh, is telling the rest of Mercy St. Clair, my, uh, the Trekker comic, and telling the rest of her journeys. So uh, that's maybe a quick capsule of me. Like you say, and like you've always said, Trekker is your baby. 
Uh, tell us a little bit about Trekker. Right. Okay. Well, as I said, it was, uh, I, I built at the time what I, what felt to me like my dream project at Dark Horse. I wasn't building a series trying to figure out, oh, this is something that a lot of people will think is cool, or this is a series that will be highly commercial and sell to a particular audience. I just took Dark Horse at their word and said, what is the series that I would the most like to tell? And I have to give myself credit for at least answering that question pretty accurately, I guess, because I'm still thrilled to be working on Trekker all these years later. And what Trekker is, is it's a science fiction series because I've always loved science fiction. And especially back when I was, when Dark Horse first invited me to come work for them, it was not easy to find a job drawing a science fiction comic book. You know, the, the industry was largely at that time, you know, superheroes, of course. Um, so I wanted to do a series of a science fiction because I've always loved that. Everything from, you know, old, you know, old school Flash Gordon comic books to, um, you know, Star Wars or Blade Runner. Those movies were just, you know, so exciting and so innovative at the time. I'd read books like Dune, you know, some great science fiction classics, but I also loved action and adventure stories. So I thought uh, making about a young woman who's a bounty hunter just felt like a cool thing that I could uh, really sink my teeth into and explore her character as a human being, growing and evolving over time, while also having these cool sort of badass adventures, you know, crash landing on swamp planets and gunfights with with uh, criminals in the dark alleys of some sort of a film noir sort of setting with spaceships flying overhead. Uh, that whole range of, you know, everything that, that felt like fun, cool science fiction to me. And I tried to boil all that down and put it into one sort of long form story, this this young woman's life journey uh, of self-discovery and destiny, um, but with a lot of these high octane, explosive, kick-ass action adventures all strung together that, that trace the, the journey. It, it's something that when I first started it, it just seemed to check all the boxes for me about the things that I'd most want to tell stories about. And all these years later, um, it still checks every one of my boxes. <laughs> and uh, I, hopefully I've only just gotten better at the craft as time has gone on. I think the stories that right now are sharper, better, more focused, and drive the series forward each new step at a time. Uh, and I hope my art has also gotten a little bit more refined and uh, a little bit stronger and more vivid. So uh, how's that work? <laughs> It's always telling as a writer, as an artist, as a creative, that you we're always, I think, looking back at our older work and saying, man, our newer work is so much better. And we're always, <laughs> we're always evolving to try to get better. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's 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 one of the things about about this job. I mean, a lot of jobs are, are like this in one aspect or another, but it's certainly true if you're if you're an artist, if you're if you're a comic book storyteller. Uh, it's such a complicated, multifaceted task that no matter how well you feel like you nailed it <laughs> the next day or the next week or the next month you'll see something that you've done in the past or or, or written in the past and you'll say Ooh, I didn't get 100% or even 75% in that panel or in that bit of dialogue or the way I resolved that story. And you can either throw up your hands and give up or you can just say, I'm going back up to the plate and trying again better next time. And that's, you know, I, I believe me, I look at my old work and some when I say old work, I mean sometimes work I did 20 years ago and sometimes work I did, you know, two months ago. <laughs> and I just, all I can do is see the warts and the flaws, you know? Um, and uh, it, it's, it's pretty easy to, you can let yourself get ground down by your failures pretty <laughs> pretty quick if you wanted to but um most i just try to get ornery and get mad at myself and you know <laughs> use it as an excuse to try to try to do a little bit better next time <laughs> ron tell us about mercy st Clair. 
Okay, well, Mercy is, um, she's a young woman uh, who is incredibly gifted at basically one thing as the stories start out. She's pretty good at shooting people and getting paid for it. And uh, she, she, she's, you know, young and like a lot of young people, she sort of has her blinders on in a way. She sees the world in sort of like a black and white way where, you know, where she does her job, she gets paid for it, and that's good enough for her. I mean, if she, she had her own wishes, she'd be some sort of an implacable, you know, hunting machine, you know, like like a Terminator or something like that. Uh, the problem for Mercy and the only thing that makes the series worth telling is that despite her wishes, she's actually a messy, complicated human being. <laughs> she has, um, there are things in her past uh, and, and there are things that are going to happen in the future that are going to force her to be pushed out of that little shell, that tough little shell that she would like to inhabit safely. And of course, it's only when we get out of those comfortable shells that we're all in that we're, we're pushed to uh, the worst times in our life and also the best times in our life. And um, uh, that's where uh, that's where I think the juice comes as a storyteller. And that's the story of Trekker. It's the story of a young person who um, who the world won't let remain a simple two-dimensional thing. And uh, and I just find that an, an entirely enthralling and <laughs> and uh, a story that I that won't let go of me. So I don't let go of it. <laughs> Now, you talked a little bit about the original inspirations behind Trekker, some of the science fiction and action adventure stuff on the market. Were there any inspirations behind Trekker that might not be so obvious? Um, yeah, I think one of them for sure is uh, the very first sort of regular series that I worked on was a backup feature for DC Comics. Um, years later, I was drawing the lead feature of the Warlord comic book. But when I first started out, um, the first regular, regular gig I got was to draw the backup feature in Warlord. It was written by a, a great writer named Gary Cohn. And um, he had this idea for a thing he called the Barren Earth, which was also science fiction, but his this was much more like a Edgar Rice Burroughsy sort of take on it, uh, sort of crossed with Dune and a little bit of Star Wars thrown into the mix there. But it was um, far future. The sun is becoming a red giant, so the entire planet was baked. Humanity had fled to the stars, but some some remnants on Earth had evolved into other life forms. And then a ship from the you know the far out in the stars winds up coming back to Earth, winds up crash landing. So you've got a, a young woman is essentially stranded on this on this blasted world and has to make her way um it was just cool sci-fi adventure there were lizard creatures and people riding around on giant lizards on this desert planet underground uh, oceans that had evolved uh, fungus creatures <laughs> and so it was just it was just a lot of fun and what i cribbed from that for trekker uh, was a, a, a strong female driven science fiction adventure that had an intimate scope and scale and also the sense of much larger stakes at play so those elements i just sort of re mixed as I and weaved into um, all the elements that I that he came up with for Trekker, which is much more of a, a little bit more of a grounded in, in a sort of a grittier reality version of, of sci-fi uh, storytelling, I suppose. But some of those elements, uh, I, I got to give a lot of credit to Gary for helping uh, to helping cook up that stew in the first place. And over the years, Trekker has built up uh, quite a fan base over a long period of time. Why do you think Mercy St. Clair has such lasting appeal? Boy, I, I, I don't, obviously I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's, um, at least what I hope is, hope it is, is that from the very beginning, um, my primary objective with Trekker was to tell the story of, and depict a character that felt, that felt convincingly human, believable, identifiable, and, and sort of real. I, I know that the stories that hook me, that pull me in the most, don't, aren't the stories that rely on really clear 
clever plot twists or spectacular um, set piece moments. Those things are all cool and great. But the thing that hooks me into a story is the characters. If I feel a sense of connection, I can identify with that character, whether it's a, you know, it's a, a male character, a female character, or even an alien character. If there's some, there's some sort of sense of shared, you know, humanity, and I recognize them and can sort of identify with the experience that they're having. If I get that sense of connection, I tend to want to, you know, I, I, I root for them. I, I, I get afraid for them. I sort of viscerally, you know, or uh, not viscerally, but I sort of become them in for the length of the story. Mm-hmm. And um, so I knew that that was the kind of story I, I needed to tell in order for me to stay interested in the series um, over the long haul. And keeping a character who is a sort of a, a young but a, a badass bounty hunter, to keep a character like that believable, while I, while I hope Mercy is always sort of, you know, sexy and charismatic, but she also had to be dressed practically and go about her job and her life in a way that felt human to me, or else I wouldn't be able to believe in my own series. So I tried to build it up to be as convincing and realistic, even though it's an outlandish science fiction series, as I possibly could. Um, it's lasted for me. I mean, to me, these characters, Mercy and Molly and, and the small cast of characters over the years, I do everything I can to keep these characters real, believable characters you care about. You know, they, even when Mercy does something incredibly stupid or, you know, half-cocked and, and emotionally clueless, I think most of us have done those things and uh, you can get exasperated with her, but just hopefully you still care for her. You wanted to learn, you wanted to be okay. You know, <laughs> you want Peter Parker to be okay. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm hoping that that's, that that's a big part of the hook that keeps readers coming back. Yeah. And there's a, uh, uh, there's kind of a phrase that I always keep in mind. And, th- and this is absolutely not a knock on your art because the art, the art in Trekker is fantastic, but okay. good art can say, sell a book but good writing can sell a series. Yeah, that's that's. I don't take that as as a knock at all because I agree one hundred percent with that. Uh, the I, years ago, I came up with a formula, and and mind you, this is back when I wasn't writing. I was just drawing comics, but it just seemed to me I just looked at my own sort of buying and reading habits with comics, and I would say if a comic book has or if a series, if there's an issue that has a really great cover on it, you know, I might buy a comic book for a really cool cover for an issue or two. If the art inside is really good, since I'm an artist and I like to look at other good artists and try to you know <laughs> swipe a, swipe a little secret here or there or, or or you know learn from them, I'll buy a few issues of something maybe you know, but I won't become a fan of the series and buy it, you know, for years if I don't find the stories and the characters compelling that I feel that sense of connection with. So I, I'm on the exact same page with you there. It's the story. It's always a story that's got to be at the core and drive things forward. And for a story to really work in comics, you need a good script and you need art that complements that story. Well, I worded that wrong because I don't want anyone to think that's a Trekker has subpar art. The uh, first time I really read through Trekker, just some of the way the panels are set up, it's masterful visual storytelling. But what oh, really thanks. but what really keeps me with it is that Mercy feels like a real person. Just as an example, there was one of the earlier stories. She was getting ready to go on a date or was going to go on a date later and then it got interrupted because of the adventure mm-hmm. that was going on and it was it just felt so kind of relatable. <laughs> well, that's thank you so much. I mean, really that that uh that's you know basically the highest praise that, that I can get from any reader is if they read the book and they say, what you just said, Mercy feels like a real character to me. That That's always been the primary objective I've had. I don't feel that my plots have the most 
most accomplished, uh, those su- surprise, you know, plot twists and the most clever, never before seen sci-fi concepts and all that sort of stuff. Look for somebody like Brian K. Vaughn and his work on Saga with Fiona Staples for that sort of stuff. What I'm doing with Trekker is a little bit different, but what I do hope that I achieve with regularity on Trekker is just that, that she feels believable. Yeah, she's she's finding herself in situations that we could all find ourselves in and she responds in a way that we could all see ourselves responding in. Not necessarily always the best way, but a human way. That's that's a that's a big part of what I think makes any series, you know, fail or succeed is how believable are the characters. And the latest chapter in the Trekker saga for Mercy St. Clair is uh, called, entitled Trekker Hunter's Moon. And it's actually live on Kickstarter now through October 29th. You can pre-order the book by visiting www.trekkerkickstarter.com. Tell us about Hunter's Moon. Um, Hunter's Moon is, I, I, what I hope I achieve with Hunter's Moon is, is the, the balance that you want to have as a creator, I think, where, where aspects of it are exactly what readers find with every Trekker story that I do, if I'm doing my job right, which is it's got a certain amount of these you know, cool science fiction elements that, as I say, sort of appeal to the 12-year-old in me, for sure. Spaceships and alien planets and excitement and action and chases and all that stuff. And it's also the next step in Mercy's journey. Each one of these these stories um, tells the next step. Lear- Mercy learns more about her past, about the the larger world that she's constantly being pulled to be taking a bigger part in that ultimately will lead to a huge, come to a huge head as the series reaches its climax years down the road. So this is an essential step in that journey. Um, and at the same time, I want each story to, to be a little bit different, to up the ante in one way or another, and also just sort of have a different story tone to it. So the story before Hunter's Moon was called Battlefields, and that's one where Mercy is winds up on a planet where she's caught in a literal battlefield, like between two opposing armies, and she winds up pairing up with a, a, a troop of soldiers. And so there's that sort of a, a GI war story, squadron of fighters, uh, um, or squad of fighters, uh, feel to that sort of story. Uh, very grounded in that. And Hunter's Moon is quite different. It's uh, Mercy's on this raw, savage swamp and forest sort of planet, and she winds up confronting a creature. Uh, and there's a story about where the creature came from and what role that has to play in things. But the series, the, the story ends in this sort of savage, uh, primal, one-on-one contest between Mercy and the creature. What, what I was thinking of was something like Tarzan, you know, Joe Cooper when he did this great run of Tarzan comics for DC in the 80s, uh, or uh, when I worked on Swamp Thing and got to draw that cool, creepy creature out in the forest and stuff like that. So I wanted a combination of those two things. And somebody else pointed out to me, kind of like Predator. And I said, yeah, there's a lot of elements here that are that sort of that sort of savage hand-to-hand tooth and claw confrontation. So in some ways, I think this is the most um, the most intense one-on-one battle that I've shown in Trekker. So I tried to shift the gears enough with each story that a reader who has read every Trekker story I've done will still find some things that are a breath of fresh air and a little bit of a change of pace in each story, but enough common elements. And of course, largely that's mercy being at the core of all the action that it still fills up a piece for the series. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I've never had more fun in writing and drawing a story than I've had in, in creating Trekker Hunter's Moon. It's just been, <laughs> it's been a blast. Ron, I want to pivot a little to uh, talking about your process 
being both the writer and the artist for Trekker, are you writing a full script for the story before starting on the art or do you just outline and dive in? Right. No, I, I, I do the former. Uh, we were just talking a few minutes ago and I think I use a phrase something like the story, you know, is, is the most, you and I were talking about how the story is the thing, right? That's what keeps you really coming back. That's the primary thing. That's the core of it all. And uh, for me, yeah, I write out a full script. I, I do the very best I can to basically turn off the writer part of my brain, uh, the artist part of my brain, excuse me, and concentrate on just writing a story that, that stands up, that, that has, you know, logic and structure and it's terse and tight and muscular and to the point and checks throughout. The, the characters are evolving each one in their own way and the relationships are being expanded. And then that basic plot has that forward, forward momentum from page to page that you want to have. And then when I get the, you know, I'm going to start off with a basic raw outline, goes through a, a draft or two or three or for until I figured I've got the furniture in the right place. And by that, I mean, you know, I'll start off with the scenes in a certain sequence or order, and some scenes are longer and some scenes shorter. And maybe I'll rewrite the outline and, and adjust how long I think this scene should take, or maybe I cut that scene or put it elsewhere in the story, you know, just sort of moving things around when it's in that outline shape, it's very malleable. And, um, and when I feel like I've got the story structure down, right, then I go to work on, on a full script where I, you know, break it down panel by panel, putting in at least a first take on as much of the dialogue as I can uh, to help get the ideas down and get a sense of what's conveyed in word, what's conveyed in pictures. And then I'll go and do a write, rewrite or two or three on the scripts. And only then will I try to turn back on that artist part of my brain and work on using doing thumbnails to, to lay out each, each of the pages and I know that I've done the first part of the job right when sometimes the writer in me gets mad at the, I mean, the artist in me gets mad at the writer because he'll say, this writer wrote this scene, but it's really going to be hard to draw or I can't really block it out the way that they thought I could because that means the writer was was concentrating on story. And sometimes the artist has to do the job of taking a difficult to draw scene and making it work. And not every scene that is in the script is going to be really easy to convey. Sometimes you're challenged. So I feel like I'm doing it right and really prioritizing the story first when sometimes it's really hard as the artist to make it work that said if as i'm drawing it i come up with a different idea for i don't know the way a conversation can go the sequence of of panels for that or a cool nice shot that could go well but it needs to be set up differently things like that i'm i give myself permission to improvise and revise as i go along the way but the the idea is to try to make it all work together to just tell a story Uh, i don't think my job is to be a writer or certainly it's not to be an illustrator Uh, if i wanted to be an illustrator there's a whole lot of easier ways to make a living than drawing comic books for living. This job is a very, very labor intensive thing to do unless you're passionate about it. But this is what I want to do. So that's what my job is. I feel I'm a storyteller and that takes the words and the pictures working together, you know, in that special way that you can do. Anybody who's read comic books much recognizes that, you know, there's a special alchemy that comes about when the words and the pictures blend together in a way. And that magic that happens in the, in the space between two panels, when the reader has to fill in the gaps and stuff, that's a special thing that, that comics do. And uh, I always, always try to strive to do that pull the readers into the story so there that's that's my process i guess <laughs> and it's a special kind of magic too that happens between the collaboration between the writer and the artist of course it's a little different with you because you do both mm-hmm. uh, but i know whenever i write a script and i send it out to my artist I think it's important to have a plan, but not be so focused on that plan that you can't let anything change at all The artist, oftentimes when I get the pages, I'm blown away by how good they look or how different they were from what I was originally envisioning, but it's so much better. 
when we did my little sort of career review <laughs> or overview at the beginning of this, uh, I mentioned how I've done a lot of work where I've been that sort of hired gun. I've been an artist and I'll get a script for uh, an issue of Supergirl to draw. And uh, my training from going to the Joe Kubert school is you look at that script and you make that script work. Uh, it's not my job to rewrite the story or only draw the stuff that's going to be fun or that's going to make for the most impressive splash pages, you know, that sort of stuff. My job is to tell that story in a way that's really effective. And um, if in looking at a script and reading it over as I'm starting to get ready to draw it, I think, gee, I, I really think that if I use a close-up of the doorknob on that panel, you know, it adds a beat and it adds a moment of suspense or whatever. It's not written in the script, but it just occurs to me, I think that this would make the story better and I put it in there. And if I turn that story into the editor, the editor, if the editor notices the change, if they think that, if they agree that it makes the story better, their only appropriate response is to say thank you to that artist. <laughs> you know, if on the other hand, I turn in a story and it's unrecognizable or it's it's just weakened the story because I just wanted, I wanted to have more of a platform for me showing off the stuff that I like to draw the most. Then the editor's appropriate response is, you did not do the job. Start again. <laughs> This may be kind of a loaded question because I know it can vary from day to day and week to week, mm -hmm. but what does the average work day or work week look like for Ron Randall? Oh boy. Um, from the outside, it probably looks really, really depressing. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is as unglamorous as, as you can imagine. I, I get up in the morning, especially now in the age of, of COVID, you know, I've got a home studio and uh, I get up in the morning, I make myself a cup of coffee. I go into my studio and I'm, uh, I, I work on a script if I've got that to do, or I fire up the, the computer and I draw on a, a drawing screen, a Cintiq, and I'm working on the art. And uh, that's pretty much my day and largely my evening. If I'm lucky, I'll uh, knock off in the evening and my wife and I will have an hour or two to unwind by watching uh, watching something on TV. Maybe we have a little glass of wine and then it's to bed and wash, winch, rinse and uh, repeat or something like that. Uh, <laughs> I just get up and do the same thing more or less day in and day out. Now, that said... Um, um, especially before, you know, before the, the coronavirus hit and, and people could move around more freely in the world, my day, you know, I, I have the flexibility to set my own schedule. So if, if something comes up, if I wanted to get together with friends for lunch or sometimes we'd drop everything as it were and, and drive over to uh, visit some friends or go to see one of one of our kids. So there is some flexibility in the schedule. But but the bottom line is the way I write and draw comics, it's, it's extremely time consuming. Uh, I often said, I have a lot of flexibility in my schedule. I can choose to work any 18 hours in the day I want to. It's just what it's just what the do job requires. I don't have a style where I can draw five pages, you know, in an afternoon. It's a lot of precision and a lot of concentrated effort for, for writing the stories I want to write and drawing the stories in the, in the sort of way that I, that I do. There's just, there's just no, no toys around that. And it's, as I was saying before, it's a lot of, it's a lot of effort. And um, fortunately I do embrace that philosophy because it's been true for me that if you're doing what you love, you'll never work a day in your life because it very rarely feels, feels like quote work unquote. I don't feel like, Oh, I'm going to the office and I'm slaving for the man. You know, I'm getting to go into my studio and continue to tell my tracker stories. And that just always feels like hitting the jackpot, <laughs> even if I've got to do it for 12 hours a day or whatever. Yeah, I'm the same way. I definitely wouldn't change it for anything, but I feel it's tough talking to a non-creator. They just think, oh, you go into your office and then you're drawing and you're, or you're writing and you're doing this creative stuff. It, I understand kind of where they're coming from, but at the end of the day, it is work and it has to get done. Um, I have a rule for my office where the computer is only for work. 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. To survive in this in this uh, job, like it's not like you're going to a different office and there's somebody there that's keeping an eye on you and making sure you're paying attention to what you do and all the distractions are gone because you're physically away from all of your stuff. For those, especially those of us who, who have a studio or a home office, all the home stuff is there all the time and it's it's it requires a, 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 a type of focused concentration and discipline to be able to sit there and produce the work and not get distracted by, yeah, by, by surfing the internet or checking out what's going on on what's what's on on TV at 3:45 in the afternoon. I don't know. I better find out. <laughs> you know, no, you're supposed to be drawing those buildings in the background again. Or you know, it's so it's a coping mechanism that each artist has to learn how to do and that's almost to to trick themselves or or, or talk themselves or cheerlead themselves on to keep to keep your butt in the chair and drawing even when the going gets rough. <laughs> Ron, what have been the biggest obstacles or challenges you faced in your creative career and how did you overcome them? Well, um, biggest obstacles for me are the times uh, when I haven't had any, when I haven't had any work or at least the job or jobs that I've got on the plate at the time are starting to come to an end. And then it's time to, to get other work. I've never been a master at figuring out how to, how to scratch work up or, or, you know, snap my fingers and make it the next dream job <laughs> appear, uh, you know, when I want it to. Sometimes I've had to, to, to scrape and it's, it's hard to go out and try to, to job hunting is, is a soul destroying um, process, I think, for just about anybody. Uh, there are a few people that are probably blessed with a knack to make that sort of fun and playful and they rise to the challenge. But I've always just found it just it's very tough to do. So the toughest times in my career have been those when it's like, you know, the work has been not there or drying up and it's hard to keep the pain. It's been hard to keep the panic at bay <laughs> and that sort of stuff. So that's a very real world practical uh, challenge that I've had uh, from time to time. You know, and th then there's other times when when the challenge is exactly the opposite. And I have so many projects on my in my tray that prioritizing and keeping this client happy and that client happy it's, it's a matter of uh traffic control so uh i guess what that means is overall one of the best survival skills you need to develop as a freelancer for a long career is is to be able to ride those waves the highs and the lows uh not get too high not get too low you've got to keep a certain amount of faith uh in yourself trust in the process and keep going on so maybe that maybe i'd say that I've been fortunate that when I've had, I know a lot of people, it can be challenging to collaborate with others. You were talking about how, you know, when you're a writer and you send the script to an artist, uh, you get back sometimes something that surprises you. And if it's going well, you're pleasantly surprised. But other times you can sort of feel those collaborations. You're playing tug of war with each other. And fortunately, I haven't had too much of that stuff to deal with. So I feel feel fortunate that usually my, you know, I, I'm able to, you know, to, to recognize, I think, what the, what the writer is going for with their stories. And I, I try to serve that story with the art and they seem to appreciate that pretty well. So anyway, so that, that, I guess that's sort of the toughest challenge for me would be that tolerating the, the ebbs and flows of the workflow plenty of art challenges. Boy, you know, I, I, I still, I, I think every artist worth their salt uh, is dissatisfied with their, with their figure drawing, <laughs> the, the drawing the human figure, getting expressions and construction and sense of movement, right. Is just a, a lifelong pursuit for those of them who want to make it that way. So, you know, I'm always coming up against the, the limits of my knowledge and abilities in my art. And again, I just have to pick my battles and try to get better with the next time around. What have been some of the high points in your career? 
Okay, so that's that's some of the challenges, the high points. Well, quite honestly, I'm having you know I'm having the best time of my career right now. Uh, I and I'm I feel incredibly blessed and lucky to be able to say that. But to be able to take my dream project, which Trek remains to this day, and to be able to produce these stories on the schedule and bring them out in the format that I think serves the series the best is the best uh, for readers to get a good experience of the series and to be able to tell these stories more or less, you know, on my own terms is, I, I just don't, as a cartoonist, I cannot think of something that would, that would be more fulfilling and satisfying to me. I mean, I've had other great highs. I, I, I when I was drawing Star Trek for Marvel, Al Williamson was my anchor. Yeah. Al Williamson is, you know, is one of my two or three absolute gods in comics. I just thought he was such an elegant, immaculate artist. And, you know, I got to, I got to work at Joe Kubert's elbow. I got to learn, I should say, right at his elbow, working side by side, sitting with him at his drawing board as he was showing me things about my little stories that I was drawing for him. It's it's hard to imagine having greater opportunities to work with, you know, with real heroes than I, I than I've had. So, um, yeah, there've been some low points in my career, but man, I've, I've had a lot more high points to, to compensate. Like you were saying about writing the low period or, you know, writing the uh, times with no work, writing the high mm-hmm. times with no work. It's the same with money as it is emotionally. There's going to be low points in your career. There'll be high points in your career. So that definitely yeah. resonates with me too, especially because I wear my emotion on my sleeve. Right, right. Well, my studio mate, Steve Lieber, he says, <clears throat> so when we've had, um, when we were able to meet at the studio together and we'd have these mentees that would come in there uh, and we would do these little chalk talks or, you know, whatever, just, you know, just little um, lessons for them on different aspects aspects of being a comic book writer or a comic book creator. And one of the sessions was on how to conduct yourself at a, uh, at a comic convention. And um, Steve would always, somebody else is usually giving a lot of pointers about, you know, how to, how to approach your table display and how to figure out what sort of stuff to, to sell and so on and so forth. And Steve would always say, how do you answer the, say you're at, say you're at a convention and everybody else around you is doing okay, but you haven't sold one thing at the show and you paid hundreds of dollars to get to that convention and you, you're paying for your own food and you're just going to take an absolute financial bath at this show and you know it and you're sitting there at your table and all that's in the front of your thoughts, right? And then some fan comes up to your table and say, Hey, Ron, how's the show going for you? What do you answer? And your answer is, I'm having a great time. I'm having some of those wonderful conversations with fans I've ever had in the show. You know, you, you emphasize the positive uh, because we are there to represent ourselves sort of as a, <laughs> as a business of one, you know, and uh, bringing down the crowd isn't the way to do that. And that can be really, really hard to do, of course, you know, if you're sitting there just at your table and you feel like the, the little wallflower at the dance that never gets invited onto the dance floor or something like that, you can feel pretty for a warrant, but um, you have to find a way to, to, to buck it up. Negativity breeds negativity. What I do when I start feeling that, I'm like, okay, I'll put up the be right back sign. I'll go for a little walk around the showroom floor and then just come back. And usually by the time I'm back, I'm refreshed. Yeah, that's that, that's so important. I mean, and actually, you know, the exact same, and you probably found this true for yourself. The same thing is true if you're locked in the creative process and either as a writer or as an artist, I just find myself grinding up against the, the, I'm stumped. I can't figure out, you know, how to transition to the, the next scene in the script, or I just can't get that figure to have the gesture that expresses, you know, the emotion, right, or whatever. And sometimes the, sometimes you have to sit there and sort of power your way through it, but it's a great instinct to be able to develop, to be able to say, I need to disengage from this. 
And even if it's just a matter of stepping out and going down to the kitchen and pouring myself a glass of water or a five minute walk around the block or whatever. And then I come back to the work and I see with fresh eyes and uh, it, it can, you know, I can either spend four hours you know, banging my head against the wall, not being able to see the solution. But sometimes if I just disengage for one minute or three minutes and I come back to it, boom, I can just see it with, with a lot more clarity. Just letting myself come unclenched. <laughs> I guess is a way to put it. And that can work like you're just saying, you, if you're at a convention too, and you're having that same sort of a, you're just mired down and, and it's not, you're right. You just, you can sort of exude this vibe of negativity. It's just, it's, it doesn't do anybody any good. What mistake do you see newer creators making in their careers? Wow. That's a good, that's a good question. Um, well, here's one that, that, that we, we, we see quite often. A young creator will come in and uh, they're, they've got a project on the board and it's like a 500 page graphic novel that they're telling. And they, they, that can be problematic for a couple of reasons. Uh, we, we, we tend to feel one, it's going to take you a long time to get that story told. If you're still a young creator, you are still evolving by definition as a writer and as an artist. So that means when you're on page 300, it's not going to be very consistent with what happened on page one. So you're going to be tempted to go back and redraw page one, you know? That sort of evolution is rewarding and fun to see over the course of an artist's career, but it doesn't work well when you see it within one project. And the other big problematic element about trying to do a huge magnus opus, <laughs> magnum opus right out of the box, is there's a really good chance you're not going to ever get to page 500. Uh, or if you do, it's going to take years. Uh, and you will, in the meantime, have trained yourself to always be in the middle of working on something as opposed to learning what it feels like to be done. And uh, there is a tried and true phrase in this world of commercial art of doing this sort of thing for a living. And that is done is good. We, I often say, uh, okay, you've got your 500 page opus. Let's put that aside for now and come up with a short project, like a, a 10 page story or something, just a short story that you can conceive, you know, construct and complete <laughs> and get the sense of what it's like to have, be done with something and feel what it's like to have to let it go and move on to something else as opposed to continue to fuss and worry over it. And if you've got a 500 page thing, you're just going to be it's just so easy to get mired down in that, you know, make your major statement once you've gotten a little bit more experience underneath your belt. Uh, that doesn't apply to everybody. Uh, a lot of people don't start off with a great big thing like that. And once in a while, it can work for you. Uh, the one thing I really believe about art is there are no rules in art, no absolute ironclad rules. Any of the quote unquote rules we have can be broken. But at the same time, there are a lot of very, very excellent suggestions or rules of thumb that are there and have been used for decades or centuries for very good reasons. And if you want to violate those rules, that's your choice. But it's really great to know that there is a rule <laughs> because if you're violating a rule, like for instance, in storytelling clarity, there's some, some really great rules. And if you violate one of those rules, you're risking making your, your story unclear to a reader. So you need to be able to compensate for that, you know? So I don't know exactly, I, guess, I think I kind of went off track from the, from the original question, but uh, knowing the rules, knowing that those rules are really just suggestions, but a lot of them are damn good suggestions. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe that's a good way to put it. What's the best advice that you can give someone who's starting out and wants to do what you do? Best advice, boy, I, I guess, you know, it, it has to do with uh, the, maybe the, there are two things you need to have, I think, primarily, if you want to survive long haul as a comedy book creator. A passion for 
telling a story. Like I said, if you just want to do nice drawings, go be an illustrator, some, something like that. Comic books is about using a series of illustrations to tell a story. Uh, sometimes with you know dialogue with text involved with that and sometimes not. So passion for storytelling. If you've got that, you'll keep feeding it by by seeking out other stories that people do and, and you'll absorb like a sponge, little techniques and little touches from this one and that one. Uh, and that will feed you. Uh, and that's a never ending process. So passion for storytelling is one. And then not only the ability to, but the tendency to <laughs> uh, put your butt in a chair for hours and hours and hours at a time drawing without anybody praising you or rewarding you for it. You've got to have that internal motivation um, because I think it's like a diet. You cannot force yourself to sit in a chair and make yourself draw for enough hours to get good enough to be able to do this a long haul. Um, you've got to, you've got to really enjoy that. So, um, th those are the two things that I'd say to start with. Uh, if you've got those things going for you, I, I think then you just, you know, keep your eye open for, for the opportunities and the invitations that the world will probably bring to you, be willing to hustle, uh, and, and keep at it and things can happen. Uh, but if you don't have those two things, I, I think you're, you're probably in the end, not going to find that this is a good fit for you. Hey, Ron, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Everyone listening, go check out Trekker Hunter's Moon. It's live on Kickstarter right now through October 29th. You can find it at www.trekkerkickstarter.com. Ron, where else can we find you online? Um, I'm on uh, Twitter at, uh, at Ron underscore Randall. <laughs> you can also find me on Facebook. And I'm on Instagram at Randall Shots. Those are the most prominent places to find me. Um, and if you uh, sign up to the Kickstarter, of course, uh, you can message me through Kickstarter and, uh, and uh, hope, hope many of you will do that. Ron, thank you again for coming on and talking with me. It's a great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. If you know a creator that makes comic books or any other media and think they'd be a good fit for the show, drop us a line at underthemaskshow at gmail.com. You've been listening to the Under the Mask podcast with Bill Colomb. Welcome to the family. If you're a fan of comic books, a total process junkie, or just looking for more insight into launching your own book, you've found the right podcast for you. Thanks for listening, and make sure to like or leave a review, and we'd appreciate it if you'd tell a friend or two. To reach out, visit us at underthemaskpodcast.com. This has been a presentation of Why Comics. Till next time, this is the Under the Mask Podcast, signing off.